This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. It's Tuesday, and you know we love to talk about tacos here on The Hash on a Tuesday and even eat them for lunch after. So if you are a taco sponsor, please have your people reach out to our people. We would <laughs> love that. I'm Jen Sinassi. On today's Second show, time. we have Wendy O, Will Foxley, and David Morris a show packed full of ethical dilemmas and then one metaverse story at the end. So let's kick it <laughs> off. David, what you got for us? Kind of a huge flood of new information yesterday via a 1,000 plus page liquidation filing in Singapore in the matter of Three Arrows Capital. It looks like the document was actually drafted and dated about the 7th of this month, but it just became public yesterday-ish, maybe a little bit over the weekend. And for those who aren't up to speed, Three Arrows Capital is the apparently way bigger than we thought and way more indebted than we thought hedge fund that had been a sort of poster boy for crypto success over 2020 and 2022, but has turned out to be a little bit more fragile than we thought. This obviously is a huge document that we're still working through as reporters, but there are three new pieces of information that I kind of want to highlight and then maybe we can talk through them one by one. But we do know now that Genesis, which is a Coindesk sibling company, is apparently owed $1.2 billion by Three Arrows, which is considerably more than we thought. They have already liquidated the collateral on those positions. I'm not entirely clear on whether that 1.2 is minus or inclusive of the collateral that got liquidated already. Two other significant things that we can kind of talk through. One is that this thing called TPS trading, Taiping Shan, there is more and more evidence that this supposedly third-party trading entity was actually quite affiliated with Three Arrows, which speaks to kind of some of the opacity of relationships. And then finally, one of the sort of other just little details that came out in this big document, there's something called the Moonbeam Foundation, which is owed $27 million from Three Arrows in connection to some trading that Three Arrows was supposed to do to create liquidity for this token, arguably acting as a market maker, but not really, apparently. So maybe we can get into that and what a market maker is actually supposed to do. But the gist here and the takeaway is... Not only was Three Arrows in more debt than we thought, but there were perhaps some relationships with entities that we thought were separate that were taking on their own debt that were not perhaps as separate as we thought. So a lot going on. Will, you want to jump on and flesh out my initial takeaways here? Yeah, I'll do the best I can. Like, as you said, this is very complex. And every day we're finding out the new counterparty involved with the story itself. We'd start with 3AC and Genesis, which I know we've covered on here, the hash, and then other Coindesk shows quite a few times, but just continues to get more interesting. This $1.2 billion hole is pretty large, just like Celsius, right? They have a $1.2 billion hole in their balance sheet also. That number keeps coming up. Uh, It's not a great number to be looking at either. The symmetry there is astounding. Just looking at the 3AC side and Genesis side here, Genesis sees some collateral, looks like. We don't know how much. A lot of that collateral is actually DCG-issued trust. So this is like a product they offer, Bitcoin, Grayscale Trust. And so 
that product itself is actually not super valuable right now. If you look at the market of it, there's a large discount on it that's persisted for close to a year now. And it's actually one of the reasons that 3AC blew up. They made a very long leverage play on this product that DCG issues, and it did not go super well, more or less because the SEC has not allowed this product to pivot into the open market and become a Bitcoin ETF. That's the entire purpose of the product, but it hasn't happened. That trade spoiled, and it was also used for collateral. And so 3AC has pledged as collateral. People had to take it. Genesis still has a large hole in their balance sheet, but that was assumed by DCG. DCG is very large. It's one of the largest firms in crypto, if not the largest in terms of just market size. And so they're taking that on. The question now going forward is like, what is DCG's position within all this? Because they are worth, I think around $4 billion is one number I saw float around. And this is a very mm-hmm. substantial size loss for them. Now, pivoting over to this TPS or TPC connection, it's pretty confusing what's going on here, but it does seem like there are a few key things that indicate this firm was basically owned by 3AC in one right or another. There's some filing showing that a large percentage of the equity in the firm was owned by Suzu and Kyle mm-hmm. Davies' wife. They both had a joint interest in the company. And then also some of the collateral that was need to be paid to another firm was then paid by 3AC when a margin call was called on. So 3AC mm-hmm. is paying the bills and a lot of the equity holders are 3AC founding members. Well, then you could probably say it's another 3AC entity. Jen, I'll throw it over to you for your take. Yeah, quick disclosure. So the article mentions Marana Ventures. I work for a lab that is a core contributor to BitDAO and Marana is an investor in BitDAO. So as we see this bankruptcy filing, it's so interesting because we talk about the industry as this very transparent and verifiable industry. That's the ethos that this is built on. And we're seeing the opaqueness kind of unravel parts of the industry that were so strong during the bull cycle. So I think it's really kind of just interesting to see how this is happening. One specific part that we haven't spoken about on this show yet that I wanted to bring up was that $50 million yacht story that came out yesterday. So apparently the founders of 3AC put a $50 million deposit on a yacht that is meant to be delivered in Italy within the next two months. So we'll see what happens there. And there's another tidbit that's come out in the filing that hasn't been verified yet. I believe creditors have asked for it to be verified, but they're saying that Suzu and his wife have put money down on two very exclusive mansions in Singapore and creditors want to know where the funds for that came from. So this is all kind of unraveling like a Netflix series, like so many crypto stories do. And so I just, I don't even think that we can predict what will happen next. David, I saw your hand go up. I just want to elaborate slightly on the yacht thing. We had been aware of that for a little while, but yesterday, or maybe it was even earlier today, Suzu tweeted something. He's only tweeted twice since the unwind at this point. He tweeted something to the effect of, I'm going to flee to the ocean where there is no law. I don't have the exact tweet in front of me, but he was joking about this yacht that you mentioned, basically, and saying jokingly that he's going to use it to evade the law, which I would just put out as like, if you're in trouble, don't suggest that you're a flight risk because then you're never going to get out of jail again. (laughs) So I'll I'll just put that out there for any future felons who are considering their strategies. (laughs) Wait, just uh, not to do a fact check. I think that's from two years ago. That was a 2019 tweet. 
and people are resurfacing. Oh, can it somebody now. resurface an old tweet? Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful, you, a beautiful. Yeah, for sure. It's it's a beautiful well, moment though because you're completely maybe he was right. Planning but, ahead. <laughs> yeah, David's it's, advice it's to funny... criminals still stands though. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> advice is salient. Wendy, to you. Well, the only thing I want to say on this is I'm still kind of waiting for more and more information to come out. I believe the court document, is it 1,000 pages or is that a different court document? Because yep. it seems to be <laughs> there's so many court documents to go through. So I kind of want to wait really for more information to come out. But at the same time, this is very, very sad. And it also goes to show that even though we operate in crypto and things are supposed mm -hmm. to be very transparent, people that do operate in crypto, these big entities, a lot of times they do things on the back end and they're done very privately. So you can't necessarily verify everything. And hopefully moving forward in the future, we can operate in a more decentralized and trans... Well, I don't even want to say decentralized because that's up for debate to a whole separate topic regarding ethics, but operate in a more transparent form where you can actually see more deals happen on chain. And one thing I do want to add is that if anybody is watching the show or listening and you are invested in any project that has Three Arrows Capital's name on it to where that project did receive capital from Three Arrows Capital... I would highly recommend that you research that, figure out what it is and have a bullish and bearish trading or investing mm -hmm. plan. Because if more and more creditors come calling, those positions could potentially be liquidated or they might have to sell the tokens and it could cause some volatility in the market or absolutely destroy those projects you're invested in. Not financial advice, yeah. just my opinion. <laughs> Good um, so we're going to move on to another tragic story and silly story. But first, just to reiterate that Genesis is a DCG company. Coindesk is also owned by Digital Currency Group. So just to disclose that. One final note on the Three Arrows thing, just again, to kind of put things out there in clear terms. One of the big red flags when you're talking about the TPS trading element is that Kyle Davies' wife was named as a major holder of equity in this supposedly disconnected entity. So I'm making a little bit of a jump here. Maybe she was deeply involved in the business and actually held these stakes. But the more likely reality is that there was some kind of misdirect involved here or attempted misdirect in putting this asset in the name of a spouse rather than the actual person. So that's a bit of a red flag. And speaking of red flags, we have a company that's made entirely out of them, Celsius. Will, you have an update from that whole catastrophe. Yeah, great report from CNBC talking about the ins and outs of Celsius, disclosing that there was a lot of trouble before everything started falling apart over the last eight weeks or so. We have HR reports internally about hiring the wrong people, about having very, very small compliance teams, about people insider trading the sell token, trying to pump it, about executives at the firm dumping sell token on retail, offering high interest rates without any of the ability to meet those interest rates. It's basically as close of a bombshell as you can with Celsius right now. Of course, all this comes as we are digging through the filings for Celsius through their Chapter 11 bankruptcy right now. David, I do want to throw this one up to you for some of the highlights. There's a few fan favorites you can pick from in here. Of course, every single one is more cringy than the next and more devastating yeah. for someone who's caught in the middle of this. Yeah, I think the thing that I mostly wanted to highlight is kind of a bit unspoken here, which is their source for this at least included one person who was in the quote-unquote compliance department of three people. But what's not stated here is that what they're describing as compliance or what they're saying was included in the duties of this compliance department 
isn't even what you would conventionally consider a compliance question. Compliance normally involves making sure you're not breaking any laws, making sure you're following anti-money laundering regulations. But at least in this piece, the suggestion was that the compliance department was actually responsible for evaluating the technical risk of investments that were being made. Compliance and risk assessment are generally much different duties. And if these three people were not only trying to figure out anti-money laundering issues, but also trying to figure out whether BadgerDAO was going to get hacked, which is one of the things that happened, that's really disturbing and suggests just rampant incompetence and mismanagement here. I'm not going to totally say that that is exactly what was happening. There's a little bit that's ambiguous here. But if the compliance department was actually doing the risk assessment on investments, that's a little bit concerning, I think. Yeah, I know we're talking about this as a bombshell, but I'm not that surprised. The article talks about risk-taking, disorganization, market manipulation. We look at regulation in the industry. It's so gray. And we talk about FOMO when it comes to retail investors, but I think that FOMO really does exist when it comes to crypto executives. Also, you see this at crypto events. It's who can throw the biggest party, who has the bigger bow. And so in an industry that doesn't have regulation and everyone is just kind of doing their own thing and trying to show who has more money than the next company, I'm not super surprised that corners were cut and there was insider trading and executives were just looking out for themselves. This comes back to ethics, which I think is kind of... I don't want to say questionable in the crypto industry because there are a lot of very honorable people who work in this industry, but there's been story after story that really bring ethics into the question. And unfortunately, I think that we need regulation because if we trust people to just act on their own ethics, they get caught up in this FOMO culture that's so ripe, I think, in this industry. But Wendy, what do you Mm -hmm. think? So I'm not a big proponent of regulation. I know that we do need some sort of regulation to come into play, but the type of people that we currently have making decisions for us, I don't think they have our best interest. And when we talk about my story later, I will elaborate on this more. Do you want to know where the PR people were, where was legal, where was marketing? Why weren't their checks and balances put in play? I do know in traditional firms, they have very strict rules. Like if you mess up three trades, you're done for the day or whatever it may be. And I don't know why these types of rules were not brought into this particular firm. Makes no sense to me, especially when you're managing this large amount of assets. So I kind of want to ask Will for his thoughts on this now. Yeah, I'll take it a little bit of a different way. Just looking at the Celsius picture in general and looking at 3AC yesterday, like we saw like Bombshell report that whole come out yesterday as well. It's just, it's fascinating to watch how much money is in the space and how quickly it also disappears. Like we're talking billions of dollars and crypto's market cap hit almost 3 trillion in November when Bitcoin hit $69,000 per coin. And so now we see like where a lot of this money was at, right? It was tied up in these firms, it's tied up in this venture capital, it's tied up in all these deals for lending markets. And then all of a sudden, poof, like they're gone, right? They just explode, they mm-hmm. disappear. You look at CoinGecko or CoinMarketCap, whatever you're going to look at for these token prices, you might think, eh, I mean, the token's down. But now we see through these filings that like these are people's lives at risk and their whole financial health is at risk. And now they're out of money, they're out of a job or they're in the case of the 3AC founders on the run because they have so many creditors looking after them. So to me, like I'm just taking all this in and really just pretty impressed by the self-destructive tendencies within crypto and then pretty mm-hmm. impressed with like how much money just absolutely disappeared so quickly. Throw it back to you, Wendy. 
I mean, it's not just crypto, though. That's what we have to understand. A lot of this type of corruption and this unethical behavior happens in traditional finance. It happens in healthcare. It happens in every single other industry. So for us to sit and just say, you know, this only happens in crypto and for the media to just say it only happens in crypto, it's kind of doing a disservice and it's making the entire crypto and Bitcoin industry look absolutely terrible. So yes, terrible things did happen. People did very bad things. But at the same time, it does happen in, in other industries. And I feel like the only thing that humankind has not been able to advance on in life is ego. And we're seeing that still happen in 2022. Mm. Speaking of things that happen in traditional finance, you have these things called stock buybacks that happen pretty regularly. Well, Celsius was doing its own version of stock buybacks. It apparently spent $350 million buying its own token. And there will be, again, lots of discussions about regulation. But I think that one of my modest proposals for regulation is that a traditional company should not be able to issue a token, period, and should not be managing a token, period. There is just too much crossover there and too much weird stuff going on. We've got another fantastic story. And if you're listening, thank you so much and watching. Thank you. So Jamie Lazaraga was sworn in as SCC commissioner yesterday. But the interesting thing about this is before he was sworn in to become an SCC commissioner, he was a senior advisor to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and oversaw issues related to the financial markets, small businesses, international finance, and served as a middleman for Pelosi to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And if you guys are not aware, Nancy Pelosi and her husband have been accused of doing really, really well at trading recently. Most of these calls and stock buys that she's done has been through her husband. And the reason why this is so interesting is that on July 7th of 2022, so not too long ago, there was a Cointelegraph story that broke and it basically stated a new legal advisory notice from the U.S. Office of Government Ethics prohibits any employee who owns cryptocurrency from working on federal crypto regulation. And the reason why this is important is we have somebody that worked very closely with Ms. Nancy Pelosi, and she's been accused of doing some pretty shady things. But now this person is working as a commissioner at the SCC. Is this fair? Is it not fair? Should we be concerned? I'm personally concerned and I am not with it. I would actually like to give this to Jen for your take. So I think it's important to separate the two stories, right? While Jamie worked for Nancy Pelosi, Jamie wasn't involved in this Nancy Pelosi story. But I also think the government should read the room. What an inopportune time to have this unfold and have people like us ask those questions, right? I mean, seemingly the two are very separate, but I think if we ask enough questions, we may get down a rabbit hole. And I think that's what you're alluding to, Wendy. So I think this is a really inopportune time. It feels like maybe the right questions aren't being asked. Like when we think about PR and marketing strategies on a government mm -hmm. level, but I think to relate Jamie back to the Pelosi scandal is unfair. But David, I'll pass it up to you. I think that it might be unfair, but I think the point about appearances is really important, especially mm -hmm. if I was a democratic strategist, I would be probably agitating for new rules restricting members of Congress and their activities in financial markets. I mean, even as Wendy's perception, I think is totally fair. If you have somebody who is a former assistant to a representative who has been accused of borderline insider trading on her legislative power, and then they go into a leadership position in the SEC, if nothing else, it does not look good. And I think that there has been an increasing drumbeat of dissatisfaction about various legislators, not just Pelosi, but various legislators' financial activities. And I think that, you know, the Democrats have a serious electoral challenge 
coming up with the midterms this year. And, you know, they could do something. And the fact that they haven't, honestly, to me, just screams influence peddling and the idea that somebody like Nancy Pelosi isn't willing to give up whatever alpha she's gaining on her investments, even to maintain some better appearance of actually being a public servant. And wherever you come down politically, I feel like you have to acknowledge that there is an appearance that is doing these legislators no favors in terms of actually proving that they're there to serve the people and not themselves. I think that it is maybe an appearance more than a substance thing, but the appearance matters. Will, I saw you nodding your head. You want to chime in? Yeah, I mean, this just brings me right back to our last story with Celsius, right, where they're insider trading their own token. It seems anyone in power is going to take the opportunity to better their financial situation. And that comes at the cost of both their integrity and the people who, under them who are going to be involved with this. So the interesting story mm-hmm. here as well is that the Pelosi family recently purchased a lot of NVIDIA stock. And now there is some legislation before the House and the Senate talking about the U.S.'s ability to increase chip allocations or chip production within the U.S. It seems that Nancy Pelosi is in favor of that legislation. So whether or not those two things are correlated or not, it doesn't really matter because it's all mm-hmm. about perception, right? So like probably not so unwise or, or foolish to be so blatant about it. That seems unlikely. But at the very same time, you have to think like you need to be careful with this stuff. And whoever is on her team is not being very careful with this. You know, she's been long knocked for it, right? There was quite literally a Twitter account dedicated to tracking her portfolio versus other people's over time. And she was a clear winner. And then Twitter took out that account, right? And so it only brought up more conspiracy theories about what's going on with her and her power. Anyone in the position of power has the ability to do these things. And that's why we all like the Bitcoin on this show. Wendy, I'll throw it up to you. Yeah, I just also want to clarify too that the speaker does not own any stocks. And apparently, according to her spokesperson, they told Fox Business that the speaker had no prior knowledge of her husband's transactions. And that you know, that's we can crazy. Take can I just say, are you all. kidding? I just want to say that's crazy. <laughs> this is the thing, okay? Continue. When you get to when you get divorced <laughs> in California, everybody gets half, okay? You split things in half. So how do you not know what your partner is doing? How do you not know? When this is all public, when you there's do. literally a tweet. When there's a, exactly. So even though the spokesperson said that she doesn't own stocks, that it was her husband's, whatever it is, the fact that you don't know what your partner is doing is a bunch of BS. And on top of it, like Will said, there was a Twitter account that was dedicated to following the trades. And also it's all over TikTok, like all over FinTalk. That's all they talk about. And they literally follow Nancy Pelosi's with air quotes for those that are listening, not watching. They follow yeah. the trades and these kids are doing immensely well trading. So the fact that they're coming out and they're you know, given this lip service, I personally don't buy it. But you know, that's what the story is. If anybody's listening to the podcast, I'm rolling my eyes so hard. I think I might sprain something. <laughs> We're just going to start describing our actions for the people on the podcast yeah, from now on. We should. So we'll say our take and then we'll be like, and the actions during my take were <laughs> as such. Let's wind down. Let's get ready for the metaverse. I think mm. we need a metaverse minute on this show. I think we need a metaverse minute on this show. I think we need an updated intro for the metaverse. So maybe we can work on that. Okay. Can't get better than that. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're good. (laughs) Dubai has a metaverse strategy. The city wants to attract 1,000 Web3 firms and create 40,000 virtual jobs by 2030. 
So I brought this story up because I've been to Dubai a few times spanning many years. And every time I go there, they're just so much more technologically focused. So the last time I was there, I went to the Museum of the Future. It had just opened and they had a really heavy focus on telling visitors to Dubai about how advanced they are in thinking about AI and AR and how that might integrate into to cities and the everyday lives of people who live in big cities like Dubai. Now they're focusing on the metaverse and they think that 1,000 Web3 firms are going to be itching to live in Dubai and you know be at the forefront of technology in the Middle East. Will, I see you nodding along there. What do you think of the strategy? Are we going to see other cities, maybe in the US, come up with their own metaverse strategies? Well, we've seen a lot of people roll out their metaverse strategies, right? It's definitely a marketing buzzword right now. And I'm wondering if it's going to be around in a year or so, if crypto bear markets continue, I imagine that we'll probably put that one in the closet for a little bit. That being said, 40,000 virtual jobs is interesting. Hopefully those are real jobs and not just like virtual food and all fake. It seems I've made about 7,000 jobs to date using just AR or VR technology, which is notable, right? Like people need those jobs and those seem to be important jobs going forward. Facebook has completely rebranded around it to Meta, just based on the idea that everyone is going to be moving into virtual reality for both their social interactions, their jobs, for fun, lots of things to do there, of course. So right now, they're just focused on building it. My question for this is more about the practicalities of a top-down system. This came from the head of the government itself, which is like, okay, this is your great strategy, but how are you guys going to implement this? A lot of times these things don't go very well. If it's from top down, bottom up stuff seems to work a little bit better. That's the whole point of Bitcoin, very bottom up mm -hmm. approach. And it's done tremendously well. These top down projects, eh, kind of iffy, right? Like a lot of people actually don't think Facebook can pull off this whole stunt to like change their, their image and change their product lineup because they're so big, because they're so corporate. So this just seems to be that on a whole other scale. Wendy, I'll throw it up to you. Like you said, I hope that these are actual real jobs, but I think it's also important to pay attention what other countries are doing, especially when it's metaverse or they're trying to expand technologically. That's very, very important. I wish that the United States would follow suit and I wish that we would just get some sort of like gray regulation put out so that we can continue to build because I think that having some sort of metaverse jobs or metaverse land, like a place in the United States where they're just focused on building metaverse stuff, it could be really good for our economy. Like, but that's just my personal opinion. And I don't think that the public servants or the ivory towers care about what I have to say, but that's that. We do. Wendy, we do. I want to add to that. When I thought about this, I thought, you know, a lot of foreigners moved to Dubai to work in Dubai for the tax situation, right? And so these metaverse jobs will be virtual jobs. Potentially anyone can work a virtual job, especially if you are able to hide your IP address and say, you know, you're anywhere in the world. What kind of implication are metaverse jobs going to have for taxes and regulation? And I think that the regulators' minds are about to blow <laughs> if this actually takes off. But David, I'll give you the final word. Yeah, I, I think that the top-down and the tax thing are very closely related. I mean, Dubai is not exactly known as a hotbed for technology education. And that ultimately is where this kind of thing comes from, is being able to have a community that is local that is grounded. And this like virtualization, tax-based competition for business, ultimately it becomes less about creating anything and more about like creating these top-down incentives to draw things from other places. We see it within the United States all the time. 
tax incentives for, let's say, Walmart to move into some town, you know. Um, and ultimately, it is just not a sustainable strategy to try and use these macroeconomic levers to build an industry locally. And the fact that they're talking about doing this at a remote way, even more so, just sort of, you know, distances it from any kind of grounded reality where you would have an actual, like, thriving community that is working together to create this stuff. And it becomes more about, like, moving numbers around on a spreadsheet because theoretically there's a company based here, even though its actual operational headquarters is like a thousand miles away. I mean, that's the kind of setup that I think in reality we're talking about here with a program like this. So I'll just pour some cold water on it right here at the end. And I think we're close to wrapping up, Jen. We're going to wrap it up. I think the final thought of today's show was do the right thing. Don't do dodgy stuff because eventually it will come to light and you will look like a bad person. Thank you for watching The Hash. This was The Hash on Coindesk TV. Thank you for listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sinazzi, Wendy O, Will Foxley, and David Morris. We're on the show Thanks, today. Everybody. Thank you for watching us, and we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.